You're listening to audio from The Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. So here we are in week eight. You guys are doing great. We're past the halfway point and we're on the homeward stretch. And uh, man, these stories just keep being lighthearted and jovial, don't they? Um, Last week, we had the story of Tamar. It was heartbreaking, to say the least. And one of the things I want you to keep in mind is that if you felt frustration at David's inaction in the face of the terrible injustice that Tamar suffered, and which we don't see ever addressed, it's never corrected in her lifetime, we can know that no unjust act ever goes unpunished, but Tamar does not appear to live to see justice served in her situation. If you stared at David's inaction in the text and wanted to scream, do something, then I would ask you, will you do what David left undone? Will you let the shame that should not be carried by a victim like Tamar be carried to you? If someone can endure that story, can you have ears to hear that story? And can you help them find the help that they need? I think that's the action point that we can take from that story as those who want to be available for a woman who has endured something like this, or if you yourself are that woman and you need to seek healing, that you would do so. We are not in a place like Tamar was in where your story will not be heard and where you will not receive help if you need it. So we saw the sons of David amplifying the sins of their father. David's sin with Bathsheba now plays out in an amplified version in Amnon's sin against his sister Tamar. And then we saw also Absalom, as David had murdered uh, Uriah the Hittite, we saw Absalom murder his brother Amnon. And so we saw Amnon actually um, receive justice in one sense, although it was a vigilante justice for what he had done to Tamar, but it was not justice that was played out the way that it should have been. But who has not yet received justice? Absalom. And not only has he not received justice, but he is now trying to take over the kingdom. And when we ended at the end of chapter 15, we saw David was leaving Jerusalem. So he's on the run again. But this time he's on the run not from King Saul, who made him his enemy. He's on the run from his own son. His own son is in pursuit of him, wanting to overtake the kingdom. And we saw at the end of chapter 15 that he encountered three friends, Ittai the Gittite, one of my favorite names in all scripture, uh, Zadok the priest, and then Hushai the, the Cushite, isn't he from Cush? I don't know. We'll have to look. I've forgotten where Hushai is from. It'll come up again in just a second. So he has three friends who are hanging out in Jerusalem ready to help him. And then he has, or actually Ittai is not in Jerusalem. Ittai is going to go with him. But Zadok and Hushai are going to stay and basically be spies for him. And then in chapter 16, in contrast to these three friends, we're going to see that he has three enemies. We will meet Ziba, and we will meet Shimei, and we will meet uh, Ahithophel, who we have already seen in the story prior to this. Ahithophel, who's going to give count counsel to um, Absalom, and we'll see what happens there. But what we find in this week's section of the text is that we are still living in the tension between the word of the Lord given in chapter 7 and the word of the Lord given in chapter 12. And the word of the Lord given in chapter 7 is the Davidic covenant. It is those words that were spoken to David saying that his house would be established forever. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 16 say this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down, 
down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Remember how great chapter 7 was? I wish we could have stayed there. Remember I said at the end of that lesson, don't turn the page. And yet we did. We turned the page. And at this point in the story, at the end of this week's study, we will have seen three of David's sons die. And so we would be asking, how is this going to come to pass? So we're living in the tension between the promise of chapter 7 and the promise of discipline that was in 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 12 that said that the sword would never depart from David's house as a result of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And then verse 11 and 12, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives, your enemy, in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Are we going to see that fulfilled this week? Yes. And so what we should be asking is, where do we see the turning point from the, the, the promise of discipline in chapter 12 to the promise of the kingdom being established in chapter 7, because that's the hinge point of the lesson this week. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 16, and David is going to meet someone who presents as a friend, but as we will see, is actually only out for what he can get. Starting in verse 1, it says, oh, before we do that, though, we had um, kind of the classic bad hair day story this week, didn't we? And so as a, I just wanted you to know that I, too, have had my own glorious locks to regret. So this is circa 1990-ish. Please, someone in here, tell me that you had the same hair. Please, for the love of all this season. Can we have a show of hands? Who else had the, thank you. Oh, my gosh. I need to take a picture of this and send it to my kids so I can be like, see, I wasn't totally insane. I just, I wanted to be Amy Grant on the cover of the Age to Age album. But you can tell, is my hair curly even a little bit? No, not even remotely. But, you know, the dream dies hard. And we will see the, actually, we will see the dream die hard today, won't we? Okay, good. That's good. Thanks for taking that down, Wes. Left it up there about 30 seconds longer than I needed you to. So here we go. Uh, starting in verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Meph... Mich- oh, gosh. Here we go. Spring break. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. Doesn't he sound like a great guy? And then verse 3, and the king said, and where is your master's son? So what is he asking? Where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Now this is actually kind of a weird lie for Ziba to tell. We're going to find out that it is a lie because in chapter 19 we will find that out as as Mephibosheth re-enters the story. I feel like you should break into wild applause every time I say that name correctly. Uh, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Well, the kingdom of his father, that's Saul's kingdom. Right? And what, is, what does Absalom want? He wants Absalom's kingdom. 
And so uh, it's kind of a, a flimsy lie because it implies that somehow Mephibosheth will enjoy some ascendancy under the rule of Absalom. Uh, but nonetheless, David is in a panic, and he's on the run, and he doesn't seem to evaluate it very closely at this point. And in verse 4, it says, Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba Thank you. I have finally become proficient, and I won't say it again until next week. Uh, and Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. So he has met his first enemy, a cloaked enemy. And now what are we going to see? Uh, Shimei, who is uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may also hurt me. So he's just going to use all the weapons that are available to him. Verse 5 says, When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. So hang on before we go on a little further. So Baharim is tentatively about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem in Benjamin's territory. And so this is where, we, the last time we heard about this place, it was where Michael's husband had followed her to and then was sent back. And so what is David doing? He's heading eastward. I should do this because you're facing me. He's heading eastward. He's heading toward the Jordan River. And we're going to see that he's going to cross the Jordan River. And you should always pay attention to crossings of the Jordan River. It's just an interesting, uh, there's usually some tie in there, and we will actually see one as we get a little further into the story. So it says that Shimei, the son of Gera, comes out and he's cursing continually. So Shimei would be of the tribe of Benjamin, so he is obviously a supporter of Saul, and he is angry because he believes that David is guilty uh, of the deaths of several people, and he's going to articulate that. So verse 6 says, and he threw stones at David... And at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Is this a true statement or a false statement? Is David a man of blood? He is actually a man of blood. But what is he accused of in verse 8? The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So what do we have here? We have an accusation that David is a man of blood because of the death of Saul and Ishbosheth. But what has the text taken great pains to establish for us? that those deaths were actually the hand of the Lord and the will of the Lord, and David is guiltless. Remember all the mourning that David did? Do you remember all the sackcloth and the ashes? And we asked, was that a put-on or was it not a put-on? And we said, no, we actually think David is mourning the loss and the wastefulness of Ishbosheth and Jonathan as well, just the wastefulness of it. Also, Saul did fall on his own sword for anyone who was paying attention. And Jonathan's death was the result of Saul's folly for anyone who was paying attention. So we have a truth combined with a falsehood here. But it's understandable that that would be Shimei's perspective on things. Verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. So Abishai, never one for half measures points out the obvious fact that a person who does not have a head cannot hurl insults at you. Verse 10, but the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? 
And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David is kind of stoic about the whole thing. He basically is willing to own the essence of his guilt in what this man is saying and leave him to the Lord. And this last phrase here, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. Um, Some translators translate that as that the Lord may look on my iniquity and return good to me. But I think what we see, regardless of whether you see it as the wrong David has done and, and, and that David is, is counting on the lavish grace and mercy of God, or whether you see it as him saying that because this man has cursed me, maybe God will bless me, that David's expectation of the Lord is that he will do him good. Verse 13, so David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. This is so interesting to me. Shimei is like the original internet troll here. (laughs) I was thinking about this as someone who gets trolled on the internet. And then someone had asked a question of me this week, um, where we're putting together some Q&A questions for the podcast that we do. And they were saying, should I respond? Like when, when there's like a false teacher out there, should I respond to them? Or should I, if someone says something that's wrong on the internet, should I respond to them? And I wanted to say, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I don't know. But I can tell you this, when you think about that, even if it's even something as simple as leaving a review on Yelp, for a restaurant. Your words live out there forever after you're done saying them. And even if you caught a restaurant on a bad day or you caught uh, an airline on a bad day or whatever it is, whoever it is that you need to say your negative words about, even if there was truth in it in the moment, your words will live out there forever. Look at the words of Shimei living out here forever. And I can tell you as someone who is the recipient of these kinds of words, it is wearying. And as someone in ministry, I can tell you, I have a lot of work to get done. And if I am weary from those words, then I can't do my work the way that I'm supposed to, which is why often people will say that they just don't read those words. And I do my best not to. I do my best not to. I want to own what's mine like David is doing, and I want to let the rest go. But sometimes the shimmies in our lives can be multiplied So whether you find yourself as someone who is the recipient of these kinds of critiques or whether you are someone who is overeager to offer them, it is good to weigh our words in the moment. That was not in my teaching notes. That just burst (laughs) forth. Verse 15. Uh, let's see, number, verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. And when Hushai the archite, oh, he's an archite, sorry. I just wanted it to rhyme a little better than it did. When Hushai, we're going to see a Cushite later, but wouldn't it be great if we had Ittai the Gittite and Hushai the Cushite? (laughs) That's why I was not charged with writing the Bible, because it would sound more like a Dr. Seuss book than the Holy Scriptures. (laughs) Verse 16, and when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be. And with him I will 
remain. And again, who should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Way to go, Hushai. Way to keep it nice and vague. What is he doing? He is double speaking, right? He's making sure that he still has the king's ear, or he has Absalom's ear the way that he wants to. So you have Ahithophel, who we said was Bathsheba's grandfather. Remember, and he had been David's faithful advisor, and now he has gone to advise Absalom. And is he a good advisor? Yes, he is. He is a good advisor, and so it is dangerous for his good advice to be coming to the ears of Absalom. But we have already seen last week that David prayed that the counsel of Ahithophel would be frustrated, and so we'll see what happens. Verse 20, then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So what is his advice? It is that he go publicly in to the concubines of David and sleep with them. Why? Well, because this would have been symbolic of overthrowing the house of David. So it's making a political statement, but it's also shaming his father publicly. If you remember the story of um, the son of uh, Jacob who slept with his concubine, Reuben slept with his concubine, and it was the same thing as saying, I am now in charge of the family and you are as good as dead. And so he is publicly establishing himself uh, as the king by doing this. But this is a room full of women. And we're like, this is a terrible story. And what I want you to hear is you are right. That you should feel the shock and the horror of this and that the writer would have intended for you to do so. In fact, it's going to be heightened by the way that the whole thing plays out. We have already stared down the shock and the horror of what happened to Bathsheba and the shock and the horror of what happened to Tamar. And now we will see the shock and the horror of what happens to these concubines. Why? Because a society is only as civilized as it treats its most vulnerable members. And so we see here some of its most vulnerable members being mistreated terribly, and we should feel the reaction that we do. And again, we remember the language in, chapter, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 12 was that God would do this. But where do we see the hand of God here? In fact, do we even hear God mentioned in this portion of the story? Do you remember how I said that these things would come to pass? By God actively doing them? All God has to do for his discipline to play out through the sinful behavior of Absalom, is remove himself from the scene and allow Absalom to do what Absalom wants to do, leaving us over to our own devices. So verse 22, so they pitched a tent for Absalom. And where is it? It's on the, on the roof. When's the last time we were on the roof of the palace, friends? when David was taking a stroll and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba. So they pitch a tent on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, so there's this visible fulfillment of what God had promised, and don't miss this because it was a promise that was given that these things would happen to David and to his household. 
And so we see the fulfillment of the promise in chapter 12, the promise that discipline would come. And that should be a sign to us that now that chapter 12's promise has been fulfilled, chapter 7's promise is going to again begin to emerge in the text, the promise of a kingship that will be established forever. So verse 23 says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. So this is how we know. So now Ahithophel is giving a, um, a harsh counsel. He is giving a counsel that is ungodly, but it is a counsel that makes sense for the job that he has been given to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we shouldn't read this as his counsel is like the words of God, therefore, you know, this is the word of God. We should read it as he is a good advisor in terms of strategy. And this is actually a good strategy if you are someone who's trying to overthrow a king. And so we should trust the narrator. You remember I told you that's one of the skills I want you to exercise when you are reading through a text like this. And the narrator has just gone out of his way to reassure you that Ahithophel's counsel is in fact the counsel that if you're Absalom bent on doing evil, you should listen to. And we need to understand that because Ahithophel is about to give some more counsel and then it's going to be countered by the counsel of Hushai. So verse 17, <coughs> excuse me, moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, and now we get Ahithophel's four-step plan of how to complete the overthrow of King David. Ahithophel said to Absalom, first, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. Second, I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. Third, I will strike down only the king. Fourth, I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all of the elders of Israel. So what is suggested here by Ahithophel? He says, listen, let me take a, a group of men, and I will go, and we will strike David. We will knock out David. And so some of David's people will be killed, but our people will be able to overcome because we will catch him off guard when he's tired, and then we will bring our people back to you. And so what is he suggesting here? Minimal loss of life, maximum impact. That's wise counsel. So then we're going to see what Hushai does. Verse 5, then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel of Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai, using his smooth speech once again, what does he, he does not say, Ahithophel is a moron. What does he say? Oh, listen, I know this guy usually nails it, but this time, this time he missed it. And let me tell you why, because you know what I know? I know David. And then he appeals to logic in verse 8. He says, Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Beside your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. So what does he, what does he do? He says, let's just think this through logically. Like, you know David, I know David. You know, we've kind of, you and me, we have a thing around this. So he's also appealing to, as we're going to see him continue to do, to his vanity a little bit. You and I are actually a little smarter than Ahithophel in this situation, so why don't you listen to me? 
Then he appeals to caution at the second part of verse 9. He says, And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, There has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear, for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. So he says, Hey, let's reason this out. And then he says, And you know what? Let's take the path of caution. But now, because Hushai is an excellent student of Absalom, he will appeal to his pride, to his vanity. Verse 11, but my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. And we've talked about what that means. What does it mean? From sea to shining sea. Let's get them all in here. And it says the sand of the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all of the men with him, not one will be left. So he then, lastly, he appeals to a desire for vengeance. So he says, you know what would be awesome? You with your flowing locks, riding on a mule at the front of the army, and you're like, why is the mule the animal of choice? It is. That was the mount of the royal family. And so he's picturing it. You can imagine Absalom just like, yes, I see it. I see it now. (laughs) And not only will we strike down David, but we will strike a vengeful act against David and his men. Verse 13, if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. So he's really selling it there at the end. And what is his intent with giving this alternate plan to uh, Absalom? He's buying David time. David needs to be able to escape and to organize, and so he's buying him time if he can get Absalom to agree to it. Verse 14, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? Because it strokes my ego, and that is why it is better. So here we have another cautionary tale that is not in my notes. Not only should we only take the words of a troll for what they are worth, but we should also be careful not to surround ourselves only with people who tell us what we want to hear. Don't you think that there are these people, even within the church, who will tell you exactly what you want to believe is true about yourself, who will tell you what you deserve versus what you got, who will fan the flames of vengeance or fan the flames of greed or fan the flames of vanity in you? It says, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So here we have the Lord mentioned for the first time in a long time. It says that he had ordained that the good counsel of Ahithophel would be overthrown. So God is at work. We see the sovereignty of God as we have seen throughout the book of Samuel. God is working behind the scenes and his purposes remain sure and his promises remain steadfast. And the one he has cursed will certainly be cursed. And the one he has blessed will certainly be blessed. And the one he has chosen, he will not remove his choosing from. Verse 15, then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. 
Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now, Jonathan and Ahamaz, now remember Jonathan and Ahamaz are the two sons who are loyal to David. And it says they were waiting at Enrogel, and a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. So they have this elaborate plan of communication in place. Well, not that elaborate, but uh, a woman would have been sent out to gather water. There were all kinds of gather, too. You can tell how into wells I am and, and getting water out of them. She would have been sent to get water. So her going in and out would not have been seen as anything to question, although we're going to find out that there are some people watching for activity just like this. So it says, a female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Verse 18, but a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baharim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahamaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Sound like any other story you have heard. This is the story of Rahab being retold for us in miniature here. We have two spies who are concealed underneath grain, and there is an awareness that the spies... You remember, I don't know if you remember in the story of Rahab in Joshua 2 that the king of, um, of Jericho sends people to the house and says, we know the spies are here. So we have that very similar thing here as well. These spies are known to be there, and this woman at great personal risk lies to cover the fact that the men are there. Why? Because we always, in an ethical dilemma, go for the higher ethical concern. The lower ethical concern for her is to tell the truth. The higher ethical concern is to spare the lives of these men who are bent on preserving even more life, right? So as we saw with Rahab and as actually we see with uh, other women uh, in the scriptures, this act of lying is almost always, uh, I would say always, in the, in the ones that I'm familiar with, is always done for the purpose of preserving life. Okay, so, um, and basically, what happens in the book of Joshua immediately after the spies are saved by Rahab and they go back and tell Joshua that the coast is clear? Then what happens? The nation of Israel does what? They cross the Jordan, that's right. That's right, they cross the Jordan. So what do you think we're about to see? Although you'll notice that they're actually going the other direction this time. Okay, so verse 21. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, arise and go quickly over the water. Which water? The Jordan. For thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. And so in this case, safety is found on the other side of the Jordan because this is a reverse, uh, a reverse story, right? It's, it's, it's sort of told backwards because David is in retreat at this point. Why bother with these parallel stories? Why do you think that the author does this? The author's clearly familiar with the story of Rahab. Why, why do this? Because there's an assurance to the reader that God is at work here, that this pattern is telling the reader, don't worry, God has all of this under control. Verse 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order 
and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. I'm not going to lie. I, did you find this a little disorienting and kind of feel like, why, why is this even in here? Why even put verse 23 in here? But was there any part of you that thought that this sounded a little like someone else that we know? Ahithophel is the Judas of the Old Testament. He's the Judas of the Old Testament. What does he do? He betrays King David. How? Because he has uh, Absalom go in and sleep with all of the concubines. He is a betrayer. He turns David over. And then what is his response when he realizes that his advice has not been taken? What does he know is going to happen when Absalom follows the wackadoodle advice that was given to him by Hushai? He's going to be annihilated. It's not going to go well. And so then what happens to Ahithophel if David is back on the throne? Not good things. Not only that, but Ahithophel used to serve David. So can you imagine how conflicted he would have been? And so he sees his only option is to hang himself. He is a betrayer of David. And just as the betrayal of Judas was used to bring about God's will, so also the betrayal of Ahithophel is used to bring about God's will in the life of David. David is handed over in some sense by Ahithophel, or at least Ahithophel's ultimate intent was to hand David over to his enemy Absalom. And in one sense, it is Ahithophel who hands him over, but in another sense, it is God who has handed him over because God has said in chapter 12 that these things will come to pass. And so also we see with the story of Christ. I don't know if you remember when we were in the Gospel of Matthew last year and we talked about this handing over that we saw in the text and that Jesus is handed over to the Sanhedrin and he's handed over to Pilate, but ultimately we know that he is handed over by God himself. So big similarity there. We'll see more similarities as we go through the rest of the story. So then verse 24 uh, through 26, we see that David goes to Mahanaim and Absalom is following after him, crosses the Jordan as well. He has gotten a new general. His name is Amasa. Uh, and so then they encamp in Gilead, and in verse 27 through uh, 29, we see David has a few friends still. We have Shobi, the son of Nahash. You remember Nahash? We had, it was a little confusing because there were two different Nahashes here. We had um, Amasa, who was also related to a Nahash, but that's a different Nahash. And then down here in verse 27, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites. Now that's our guy. We remember him. He's the guy who wanted to poke everybody's eyes out and then later seems to have made peace with uh, David. So here's Shobi, who is a pagan, and he is there to help. And then we have a man named Machir, M-A-C-H-I-R, the son of Amiel from Lodebar, and he is a former supporter of Saul. So we have a pagan, we have a former supporter of Saul, and then we have Barzilla, who we're going to see in chapter 19, and he's an old guy. He's like a super old dude. And so these three sort of random, they seem random to us, but what are we seeing here? We're seeing that there are still those who are loyal to David. And listen, they're bringing him all of the things that Ziba brought, but they're doing it here now when things don't look good for David at all. The battle has not been fought yet. Things are looking dire. Um, just because you and I know that Hushai's advice has been received and will be acted on, none of these people know that. 
They're waiting in the tension of what is going to happen next, and they offer aid to David at a time when there is really nothing in it for them at great personal risk. I don't know about you, but I mean, that's the kind of person I want to be. When I see the Lord's chosen, I want to offer aid, I want to offer support, even when others are against them. I want to be the person who, even if my name is never mentioned somewhere, I have done what I knew to be right in the moment, even when it was difficult to do so. Chapter 18 says, then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So he's just, this is, we're going to hear some basic military strategies, not doing anything flashy here. He's going to divide them into three companies and those three companies are going to go out to fight. Um, Verse two, and David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zuriah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. He's back. So Ittai is a Canaanite, and then you will remember Joab has been um, somewhat bloodthirsty and pragmatic throughout the whole story, and I'm understating that. And we've seen Abishai try to be the same. His brother Abishai, you know, wanted to chop off um, Shimei's head just a couple of chapters back. And so you've got the two of them, and then you have Ittai the Gittite who was loyal to David even though he could have fled. He had only recently come into his service at the time that things turned badly. Uh, So midway through verse 2, it says, And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. Now, who does that sound like? That's what Absalom was talked into doing. But notice what David's counselors say to him. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But if you, but you who are worth 10,000 of us, therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. He receives their wise counsel. Verse 4, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So do you hear? We're hearing a lot of humility in David in these chapters. He's willing to submit himself to the judgment of Shimei, even though it is only partially true. He is willing to trust that the Lord will act through it as the Lord wishes to act. And here we see him listening to and receiving the counsel of his people not to go into battle with them. And I wish I could tell you that the punchline for today is going to be uh, a penitent and restored to David, but we don't actually get to end on that note, so I just didn't want you to get to the end and feel like I tricked you. Um, So here we see him, though, demonstrating a humility. It says, so the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And so it's already turned into a conflicting message. Is it fair for David to even say this? What is David saying when he makes this statement? One of the commentators equated this to someone saying, I know that you need to cut out my cancer, but just leave a little of it because I'm very attached to it. What have we seen with Absalom? What have we seen with David's sons in general? overindulgence, just a desire to give whatever they want. He is the classic indulgent parent. Absalom is going to cause the deaths of thousands of his countrymen today. This is a civil war. 
And yet David says, let the one who has caused all of this to come to pass be dealt with gently. What do you think motivates that? It's guilt. What does David know? He is ultimately the reason that things have come to this point. It is his sin that has brought them here. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. Now, why do you think this is such a round defeat? So there are a couple of reasons that we need to understand. The first is found in verse 8. It says, The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So what does that mean? Does that mean that um, the forest was actually killing people? Well, I mean, it's it's actually going to kind of do that with, with Absalom in just a minute. So we're going to see a very visible demonstration of how the forest devoured people. But what does that mean? It means that the forest was presenting a lot of difficulty for those who were in the battle. And it was meaning that even if you were good with a sword, you were still going to have to deal with all of the trees and the brush and all of those things. But David's men who are following him are highly trained. And the people that are following Absalom are whoever he could cobble together to go with him. And so David has a highly trained force that is better at fighting than Absalom, and they, they just rout them. They just rout them. And the forest helps. In fact, it's going to help quite a bit in verse 9. It says, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Why that mention of his glorious hair? Because now we understand that his hair, his vanity, has ended up being his downfall. It says that he was went under the thick branches of a great oak. And I thought this morning as I was driving in and sitting in traffic, I was thinking, the Lord grew that tree. Like whatever that oak was, it was going to hang him up. The Lord knew the minute that it sprouted from a seedling, and he knew when it grew to a height of five feet, and when it grew to a height of 12 feet, and he knew when the branches split at just the right place, that one day when Absalom rode by on a mule that was just the right height, that he would be hung there. It says his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, and the mule that was under him went on. The mule doesn't even stick around to see what happens next. And what do we say the mule was? It was the mount of the royal family. And symbolically, we see his royalty, his throne, passing out from underneath him and going on about its way. And he, he hangs suspended between heaven and earth. No friends there and no friends here. Verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. (laughs) Okay, Joab, verse 12. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, so 10, a hundred times what you have offered me. I would not reach out my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. 
On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. What does this guy know? You would want me to take the fall. It says, and 10 young men, uh, hold on, skipped, verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. What's Joab? And Joab is not a time waster. To be fair, this is an accurate statement, and he is about to not waste time again. It says, he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom's desire in life was to have a monument to himself. And in death, he is buried under a monument of stones, but it is a monument that would be given to a traitor. This is the burial of a traitor. Not only that, but if you're familiar with the story of Joshua, right? We talked about how we've already seen some hints of the story of Joshua and the crossing of the Jordan. What happens after they cross the Jordan and begin the conquest of Canaan? Do you remember? There's the king of Ai, Ai, who they meet, and he is put to death. And then what kind of a death is given to him? He is hung on a tree, and then guess what? He is buried in a pit with stones. And after that, we have a battle with five kings, and they too are hung on a tree, and then they are buried beneath stones. The enemies of God are buried in this way. The enemies of God are put to death in this way. Why should we be paying attention to this? Because the son of David has just been hung on a tree and pierced and put in a tomb as a common traitor. In this case, he is suffering exactly for what he should suffer, except that the reason that this has all happened is because of David. So David must see his own son perish for his sin. This is an inversion of what we will see when the cross of Christ comes to play. Where the true son of David will perish on a tree, will be pierced, and will be buried. But there is no stone that can hold him down, and he dies not for the sin of someone else or for any sin of his own. He dies not for any sin of his own, but for ours. Okay, where are we? Verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. So Ahimaaz is one of the the spies, right? He's been one of the good guys. And what does he want to do? He wants to go and give the good news. But verse 20, Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. What do you think Joab is thinking of when Ahimaaz says, I would like to be the messenger who brings this news to David? 
thinking of the Amalekite in chapter 1, who when he brought the news of Saul's death and took credit for it that wasn't even his to take, David had him struck down. And so Joab says, I don't want you to be the one who carries this news to him. And then in verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. Okay, so the Cushite, did anybody get curious about where Cush is located? If you did the Genesis study, you might know. It's actually where modern day Sudan is. Okay, so think about this guy is from a long way away. He's from 1,500 miles away from where they are right now. He is a foreigner who is dwelling in their midst. And when Joab sends him, what is he thinking? He's an expendable crew member. He's not an Israelite. He's an expendable crew member. So verse 21, Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Verse 24, now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, then there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So they recognized the person. Someone would definitely recognize me running because I look like <laughs> all of my joints have come unhinged. So I'm one, I think Ahamaz must have looked better because he got there first. Verse 28, then Ahamaz cried out to the king, all is well. Do you know what the word is there for all is well? Shalom. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord, my king. But what is David consumed with? He needs to know about Absalom. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Now, look at Absalom's name. What is the word for father in Hebrew? Abba. What is the word for peace? Shalom. Absalom. His name means my father is peace. And what does David say? He says, is it well? Is it shalom with the young man, Ab Shalom? And Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. Has he told David the whole truth? No, he has softened the message and David remains in suspense. But here comes the Cushite. Verse 31, and behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for the Lord, for my Lord the King, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it shalom with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. This is a standard formula. He is not like being harsh in the way that he gives the news, but he is giving an accurate depiction of what has happened. And not only that, but he is expressing that the Lord's will has come to pass, and that is something to celebrate. 
the Cushite tells the truth. As we have seen over and over again in these Old Testament accounts, the faithful witness is given by the outsider instead of being found on the lips of the people of God. May it not be said of the church in this day. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is another verse that's unnecessary to our understanding of the story if the story is only here to report what happened. The narrator could have said, and David was deeply sorrowful at the death of his son. But instead, we have this repetition, son, 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 over and over again, as David grieves for the son of David, grieving, grieving, grieving. Why? Because he knows that he is the one who deserved that death. But don't miss that it is David's grief over his own guilt which is fueling these words, Joab will not miss it. When we get to next week and we open up chapter 19, you will see that Joab knows exactly why David utters these words in this way. David sheds tears for his grief over his guilt and his sorrow over his loss. And we will have to wait quite a long time until Christ comes to bear our grief and carry our sorrows. Del Ralph Davies says, the preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. The preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. The Cushite is not wrong to say that Absalom's death is exactly what should happen. What is the message for you and me? What are we supposed to take from this? How are we sometimes like David in this? What's the sin you love? What's the sin you think you can just kind of keep? What's the thing that you worship in addition to God that you think you need in addition to him? Because, you know, our idolatry is never, I put this in the place of God and I stop worshiping God. It's always, I'm going to keep God, but then I'm also going to worship this. That's why the first commandment says, no other gods before me. Because we tend to be the double-minded man. I want God and this. What does David want? He wants God and he wants the comfort of his sons, even when they have displayed themselves to be wicked. He looks like Eli in this moment with his wicked sons. What are we to put to death? You and I do not fight a battle against flesh and blood. Ours is a spiritual battle. David must put to death his flesh in this story in a way that you and I can pay heed to. Romans 8, 12 through 14 says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It is, I need God and I need this. What did David say in the moment that he looked upon Bathsheba? I need God and I need that. I need sexual immorality. I need impurity. I need passion. I need evil desire. I need covetousness. I need those things too. And if David had put to death his fleshly desires, he would not have watched his flesh and blood be put to death. Do you believe that there are consequences for your sin? Do you understand as David is learning to understand that God's faithfulness in disciplining you is no less beautiful than God's faithfulness in blessing you? Will you receive the discipline of the Lord? Because it's only in receiving his discipline for our sins against our own flesh, for those battling things within us that are warring. When we put those things to death, it is only in that that we begin to offer true worship to the one true God and obey the first command. Is there a sin that you're just hanging on to on the fringes? Let it go. The preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of its enemies. We are to put to death everything that is earthly in us. Because the son of David was put to death in our place. Hung on a tree, treated as a criminal. And he has been raised to life and is seated on the eternal throne of David. Do you see what's happened here? The story is still dark and still sorrowful. But with the fulfillment of chapter 12's discipline we will now begin to see the fulfillment of chapter 7, that the promise of David's throne being established marches forward. We will have to wait to see how David finishes out the story. We leave him today still a man who is conflicted. Do not be like him. Be single-minded in your devotion to the Lord. Remember the true son of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these hard chapters. We pray, Lord, that they would cause us to be even more grateful for the gift of Christ. Lord, help us to understand the beauty of an eternal throne. We live in a country where we have a change in leadership every four to eight years. The idea of someone who reigns and rules forever is a foreign concept to us. Teach us what glad submission to your throne looks like. Help us to wage war against our enemy, the flesh. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.